Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. We really are thrilled that you're visiting with us today at North Cross. Uh, my name's Clyde Godwin, and I'm the interim pastor here, and it's a real privilege to serve the community and be a part of the community. Valerie's with me today. Uh, we live in Winston, and we commute back and forth here to help out. And again, just to let all of you know that if you need help and, and want to talk, have questions, um, suggestions, uh, again, uh, we could easily set up a virtual call. I'm not here every day, but if you want to set up a time to talk and pray together, I'm available. That's what I love to do. You're asking me to do what I love to do. It's like saying to Briar Rabbit, go get in the Briar Patch. That's what I love to do. I love to get in the Briar Patches of people's stories and watch God work. So we're starting a new series today, but before we do that, we're just going to pray for a few moments this is the pastoral prayer, so it's time to pray. So let's uh, ask God to be with us uh, this morning. Uh, Father, we come in, uh, with hearts that are expectant and hopeful because we pray in the power of Jesus' name for your glory, for you to reveal yourself to us today, where we are, what we need. I uh, just pray that everybody who came here today who had a specific need, you'll meet it in a way they'll know that you're hearing the struggle, the moan, the sigh of their heart and what they need from you to, to just trust you. Um, you know how hard it is for us to trust. We struggle with it. We can say we believe things. We acknowledge things. But when it comes to heart trust, you know that's where the, where the rubber meets the road and we struggle. So help us to trust. Um, and as we trust, we want to listen. As we listen, we want to lean not on our own understanding, but in our all our ways to acknowledge you and trust you with our whole heart. Um, Father, we pray for our world today. We pray for the needs that are everywhere, but we specifically pray for Ukraine today, this morning, as it's late evening over there tomorrow, right now. Father, we pray for the church there, which is so strong, and so many uh, believers there. I've met some who are from that country. Some have fled, some are there, some have lost everything. And so, Father, would you comfort your church today, encourage them. We pray against the evil uh, that's been brought against them. We pray you defeat not only the evil of Putin and Russia, but also the evil that's coming from uh, the heavens and from our real enemy of our soul. So Jesus, you came to destroy the works of the devil and we pray you destroy his work against this country and this beautiful people, a beautiful country. Jesus, may we live to see and celebrate how you reverse the curse of what's happened in the Ukraine. 
Uh, we pray for our country today, all those in authority over us. Uh, we pray that you'd bless them and give them the gift of acting righteously for your name's sake. We know that righteousness exalts a nation when people are inclined to do things the way you intended it to be, that you pour out your spirit. Uh, but we pray you'd shed your grace again on our country. We pray for renewal, reformation, and awakening again to the things that really does change uh, neighborhoods, cities, communities, counties, states, our country. So, Father, would you begin that revival in us? Would you begin it in me? So that we might live to see together, again, <coughs> something extraordinary in our lifetime of how you can change things and change people. There are lots of needs represented here this morning, uh, we pray. Uh, for the twos, we pray for first uh, for Austin and Allie this morning as they're waking up to another day where Dylan is not here. Would you comfort and help them, Jesus, we pray. Uh, would you be with Cindy and Scott and their family and comfort them deeply, Lord, with the hope of heaven and that uh, we will see uh, Dylan again. Uh, but in the meantime, help them to grieve well and to not be afraid of their grief, but learn how to bring it to others and to you in a way that they know that you're near and that you walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Jesus, this is a hard word this morning that we're coming to listen to, but it is a great word, and I pray that you give us teachable hearts, that we be people who are willing to be led rather than feeling like uh, we want to lead ourselves. And so restore to us the comfort of the gospel and create praise on our lips as we worship uh, you today, Jesus, through the power of your resurrection and the joy and the love we share. And we pray this in your name for the Father's glory. Amen. Uh, for many years, like a lot of you, I got magazines that had print, and now a lot of what I read is online. But I used to get Sports Illustrated all the time. I love to read sports, love to read sports stories, and I'm inspired by athletes of all kinds. But on the back page of <coughs> the Sports Illustrated is a writer named Rick Riley. Some of you know it. Some of you read the column. Um, and it was just this back page observation about live sports, and he's funny and he's insightful. And uh, probably one of his most famous columns was, Why Are We Here? So the column starts off with the fact that he has uh, gone to get his son, who is playing in a soccer game, sees the game, his son comes off the field, drinking his Gatorade, they sit under a tree because it's hot, and... Um, and he's sitting there with his son who's drinking his Gatorade, eating a snack. And his son looks up to him and says, Dad, why are we here? And Rick Riley is just taken back with his thoughtful 10-year-old son asking him, why are we here, Dad? And it's just like it inspires him. So he just starts talking. You know, there's the moon, the stars. He's not, he's not a believer. So he's trying to explain the universe and life. And he's going on. And the more he talks, the more pensive. And his son is sort of grimacing. And he's going, my son is listening to me expound this great truth about why we're here in the universe. And so after he's just kind of talked nonstop about 10 minutes and pauses, he said, Dad, why are we here? Mom said we were supposed to be at the other soccer field 10 minutes ago. So 
so for a lot of us, if we ask the question, why are we here? We could laugh because we're going, yeah, why are we here? I got a lot to do. I should have been here, should have been there. But the question about why um, is so important. Why are we here? Why are you here? Why has God left you on this planet to, uh, to see him, know him, and to experience him? Now, the short answer here, and this is a hard answer, but remember, the truth will set you free, uh, but it will probably make you mad, or it will sure confuse you. Uh, but it's truth when it's truth is going to make you think and respond and feel. So if I was just to say, why are you here? And I said, to suffer. How's that sound? <laughs> you're here to suffer. That's why you're here, to suffer. And you're going, what? You know, I'm, I'm in the wrong church. There must be another church I should have gone to this morning. Um, but, you know, when we start to explore how God reveals himself, and how God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. We spent the past couple months talking about listening to God. We're going to start a series now on learning to trust God as you suffer. Uh, and I remember I was a young pastor, my first pastorate, and I was listening to a Christian psychologist on the radio. And uh, he said, you know, in the church, we need to teach people how to lean in to their pain. Okay, that's another way of thinking about suffering. Do you lean into your pain? Now, around that is lean into the pain as you lean on God, lean on Jesus. Um, but suffering is so important to how we live our life, isn't it? I mean, I, I know some of you, I don't know all of you, but my guess if we went out for coffee afterwards, I'd just say, tell me the hardest day of your life and you told it to me, I would be forever connected to you because you have suffered, and it has wounded you deeply. Now, God is in that. He's working, but you know how you can kind of know people's stories, where they went to college, where they grew up, where they served in the military, and all these things, but if you learn somebody's story of suffering, you're, you're connected to them. When I was uh, serving as the interim pastor up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, uh, sort of the last past year, um, I got to know this elder, and he was just the kindest, most tender man. Um, and I just noticed how much he ran into and engaged people with suffering. And so finally, I just said to him, Rick, uh, tell me your story. What you know? What's behind a lot of your your, your desire to help people in their brokenness. And he told me the story of his mother's death uh, when he was 11 years old, that his mother actually took her life. And he told me some of that story. So whenever I see, from re see a text from him, email, talk on the phone, I feel that 11-year-old story. <laughs> it's right there. So uh, here in Philippians 3, Paul is going to talk about Here's how you live the life that God's given you to live. First of all, to discover the power of the resurrection, to raise people to new life. And here's the next thing that he says about following Jesus, is that you might have the fellowship of knowing Jesus through his suffering, or in his, his, the way he suffered, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. So the first church I started in the early 80s, we're living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, starting Redeemer Church. I'm in my 30s. 
Um, and uh, we were starting the church, and it's kind of struggling, not going well. I'm out at a breakfast place with some of the leaders, and I am moaning and complaining about the church. People are not committed. They show up late. They're not giving. They're not volunteering for nursery. You know, and I'm just moaning and groaning. And finally, one of my dear friends said to me, Clyde, we've heard a lot about the fellowship of Clyde suffering, okay? Could we hear about the fellowship of Jesus suffering? Now, everybody at the table laughed, and I laughed too. It was great. It was funny. But man, it's one of those teachable moments, game-changing moments. It's like, whenever I get down or discouraged, I could hear my friend saying, I hear you playing the victim card again, how hard your life is, why people don't do what you do, you know. But where is Jesus in all that? So Paul says to really know and to follow Jesus, and that's what this, this is kind of his mission, mission statement here in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, and become like him in his death. So we're going to start this series on what does it mean to know the fellowship with Jesus in the midst of your suffering? So listening to leaning to loving. The third part of the series is on learning to love in light of listening to God and learning how to suffer uh, with Jesus and then learning how to love out of that. But to get there, we've got to get back to the basics because Jesus offers us a lot. But you have to go get back to first things. What is the foundation? Where does it start? How do we build on this? When I was in high school, <coughs> I played two sports mainly. Uh, I was a football player. I was a quarterback. Uh, and uh, loved to play football. But I really loved to play basketball. And I had great dreams and aspirations of being you know, Division One college basketball player, but it wasn't going to happen. But anyway, um, my dad knew I really wanted to get extra coaching, and he sent me to a basketball camp, which used to be really famous at Campbell College. Some of you know where Campbell University is now. And these great coaches from all over the country would come, and some of you will know this person when I say it. Some of you are going to go, ah, can we get past all this sports stuff? It's boring, <laughs> you know. But I was at a basketball camp with Pistol Pete Maravich, who is one of the most unbelievable, incredible basketball players of all time. He could do things with basketballs, dribbling, and everything. And uh, he was known for his droopy gray socks. So if you're ever on Jeopardy and you win a lot of money, just remember, send him my way, okay? But Pete Maravich, uh, Pistol Pete Maravich, it was just, it was such a privilege to be there. But the greatest, probably one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time was there. His name's John Wooden. He coached UCLA, um, and I think they won 12 national championships, either 10 or 12. But they won a lot of national championships. Now, John Wooden was a very slight man. He, he dressed very conservatively, you know, black pants, white shirt, short sleeve, a little thin black tie, glasses, almost like a professor. And he got up, and there were about 200 high school boys there at the camp. <clears throat> and he said, now, if you come to UCLA, if I draft you to play for me, at our practice, we spend 85% of our time at practice just working on the basics. We're going to work on our dribbling. We're going to work on boxing out. We're going to work on rebounding. We're going to work on different plays that we run. 
And that's how we spend most of our practice, and maybe 15% of their time, we're saying, ah, we're going we're gonna to actually play, play basketball. And here I am as a 16-year-old going, I'm not going to UCLA. <laughs> I want to play. I don't want to stand around practicing bounce passes and learning how to run this play and set screen. I don't, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I want to play basketball. I want to get out there. That's how I'm going to get better. Let me play. So I kind of blew John Wooden off, you know, as a young 16-year-old. But what I've come to learn over a lot of years since then is people who are really good at anything they do are great at the basics. They've really worked on the very important principial ways of doing things, believing things, living things, so that when they do it, it's seamless. It's kind of like, wow. He makes it look easy. She makes it look easy because you practice so much doing the basics. What Paul's doing here in Philippians 3 for the church in Philippi is saying, look, you can get a lot of things by doing things on your own, and I've tried it, and it doesn't work. So when we get to verse 7, listen to what he says um, in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, if I was to do a little marriage counseling here or a little helping you with your problems if you're single, and I would say, do you struggle with justifying yourself? Do you struggle with trying to defend and explain? Or maybe defend and putting somebody down for trying to put you down. Do you know how much time you spend trying to justify, why are you here? <laughs> why did you do that? Why are you acting that way? Why are you so hard on yourself or hard on other people? Do you know how much time you can spend justifying yourself to other people, to God, and feel like, I am getting nowhere. I'm spinning the wheels, and I'm sinking deeper into the sand of all my struggle, okay? Now, just to encourage you, try and just think about it a little bit, okay? Because Paul's saying, if anybody could justify himself, it was me. <laughs> Paul was the best of the best. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He did everything perfectly and whatever. And notice what he does. He says, though, but you know what? Everything that I accomplish, everything that I try and explain, is nothing compared to knowing Christ. Because if you know Jesus, you don't need to justify yourself because, church, how are you today? We are righteous. There you go. We are justified. We are accepted. Uh, we are accepted. So when you look at verse 9, listen to what he says, because this is going to be so important here this morning uh, for us. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my own effort, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Do you know the thrill and joy of making that claim on your story, your identity, that I want to be found not with my own accomplishments, not my own effort, what I inherited, what I've achieved, the good, bad, and the ugly. I don't want to be found with that. I want to be found with the righteousness of Christ. Because you see, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So this is a beautiful thing. So let's just, let's just watch this just for a second. Because if you're here and you don't know what it means to be a Christian, Here's a little picture, okay? So the picture is, here I am. 
a broken person, lots of sin, lots of unrighteousness. I'm covered up in it, and I smell bad. I stink it up, okay? So here I am, and here's Jesus standing over here. And Jesus looks at me, and he goes, I want to take everything that's wrong with you, everything's broken in you, I'm going to take it on myself, okay? I'm going to take it on myself, and guess what? I'm going to give you, Clyde, my righteousness, my perfect life, my perfect sacrifice, so that forever you will know when you're healthy and sane, you'll remember when God sees me, he sees me through the red blood filter of his son. And because of that, I am righteous. And if you know that and put that together with the forgiveness of your sins, man, stand back and be amazed. And that's what Paul is so excited about here. So John Wooden had another great line, because this is true for a lot of people in church. Uh, we can apply this principle. Wooden said, it's what you learn after you think you know everything that matters, <laughs> Okay. So a lot of you know a lot of good Bible answers, good theology, good explanations, but there's still so much to learn about what you already know that when you're humble, when you're amazing, when you're righteous, you go, tell me more about this. This is huge. I mean, this is really massive. If you could again drink in again this reality that God has made us righteous. Now notice what Paul says. I want to be found. I want to be discovered so that when Jesus comes back or I see him for the first time, he's going to say, righteous, because you trusted me. That what I did on the cross, I did it for you so that you would know real hope, real joy, real meaning, real life, and you lived it out. So here's how you know you understand righteousness. You believe it, but you want to become it. My friend Paul Miller talks about it this way, is that when the gospel's running in a church, when the gospel's working in a believer's life, not only do they believe the gospel, but they become the gospel. They become the gospel. In other words, it's not just simply words. It's the way you care for people. It's the way you listen to people. It's the way you touch people. It's the way you come alongside people who are suffering, and you represent without opening your Bible, without praying, people have a sense, Jesus is here with skin on, and I'm so thankful she's here. Because she is showing me, by the way she treats me, what Jesus is like. She is showing me kindness and mercy and patience with all that's wrong with me. That is example of becoming the gospel. So uh, go with me now back. Uh, I was a pastor of a large church in the Nashville area. I inherited a staff of 40 people. Our church is massive. I'm not a big fan of big churches. Put me in a church the size of North Cross every day. I've been in the big church, have no desire to go back. Um, so, but I'm having to lead a staff of 40 people. So this is a funny thing you could do in your community group if you haven't already done it because it's a way to get to know each other. It's a simple thing, and the guy who developed it is from Winston-Salem. Most of you already know it, the love languages. Uh, so if I was to pass out three-by-five cards and have you write your name on it and your email address, and I just said, what is your love language? 
Okay, so what is your love language? So let's review class this morning. What are the love languages? Well, the first one are words of affirmation. So please note that's my love language. So, uh, you know, is when I'm standing out front, you come up and say, brother, you hit it out of the park today. You bless me. And you walk outside, and then you come back in and say, let me tell you that again. Brother, you were on fire today. You were so hot, you were taking notes on yourself. Now, see, that's the words of affirmation, okay? Second one is serving, okay? When somebody serves you, you feel so special and loved. Now, that's Valerie's love language. You want to love Valerie? Say, Valerie, I want to come to your house. I want to help you landscape. I want to help you do this. I want to help you paint, whatever. That's her, her love language. So you can see right away, mine's words of affirmation. Hers is serving. So anyway, we need marriage counseling. But anyway, so that's, so that's two. Third one is touch. This is appropriate physical touch. Love to be hugged. Love to be held, shaking hands, arm around your neck, just big hug. My dad's love language was touch. He loved to give bear hugs. He just was a big guy, and he loved to put his arms around and just squeeze you. And he'd say something like this. So if he saw Mark, and he was with me today, and he saw Mark, and he knew him, he said, hey, Mark, give me a hug. And Mark would be just, you know how Mark is. He's real shy, you know, timid, you know. <laughs> and so he'd put his arms around Mark and say, Mark, bring it all in, brother. Bring it all in. And so Mark's just bringing it all in. All right. The next one's quality time, spending time. Say, hey, let's spend time together. I really want to hear you. I don't want to be in a hurry. Let's go for a walk. Let's go hiking. Let's go do the beach. Let's go, you know, I want to spend time with you. Then the last one is gifts. Um, okay. So that would be, I'm thinking about you and I'm going to give you something to let you know. I think about you and I care this much because I know your love language is gifts. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because here's what the fruit of the gospel looks like when you're becoming the gospel is that you know people and you know what their love language is. So here's this large staff, and we had a groundskeeper. He was a retired Marine, and uh, he did a great job of landscaping our property and doing all this stuff, and his name was Danny. Um, and so... Uh, uh, after staff meeting, or I'd see him on our, our grounds, and I'd say, Danny, you just do such a great job up here, words of affirmation. He'd kind of look at me like, yeah, you, I'm doing all the work, <laughs> you know. Uh, so whatever, he just would grumble at me or grouch at me when I'm trying to be nice. I'm using my love language. So I pass out the three five by five cards uh, to everybody on staff, and I get Danny's card, pick it up, Danny's love language is touch. Now, you would never, this is this grumpy old Marine, you know, just, you know, kind of guy. But that was his love language. So here's what I would do. I figured it out pretty quickly. But I would go up to him, and he'd be standing there. He'd been out working and doing this. I'd say, hey, Dan, Danny, let me just put my arms around you and say thank you. And he was just like a little kid. You could just see him melting, this big old grumpy ex-Marine. It was like he felt love because I knew what that love language was. All right? So believing the gospel becomes the gospel as you begin to live in other people's worlds to know them well enough to really show them that you care about them in a way that what they feel and what they experience is Jesus in you because you're dialed in, you're curious, you're listening, and you're loving them well. 
Now, why is that so important? Because all of us have to wrestle with the reality that we live in a broken world, we're broken people, suffering is real. But notice what Paul says here, I want to be found with righteousness, not my own. And one of the ways that we begin to understand the gospel together in community is the gospel, the first thing it does, it makes you feel accepted. So righteousness lets you know you are eternally accepted. Now, for a lot of you, you heard what I said. I say, what did I just say? I'm accepted. But to feel that and experience that, if you'd suffered, is very, very hard to do. It is very hard to do, to believe that, that that's real. The other thing that righteousness does, it builds assurance. Now, we're going to talk about this during this uh, series. It's one of the hardest things to learn how to do is to trust. It's again, I can tell you all the answers, but to learn how to trust, that's, that's the magic of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. When somebody begins to trust what God says about them and see themselves the way God sees them and begins to allow themselves to share their trust people enough to see their heart and to risk loving very difficult people, then, then we're really in. And that's what Paul's talking about. This is just not church words because let me just read it to you again. He says, but for whatever um, uh, to do, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may be may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what's going on here with Paul? Paul's saying, the foundation that we need to lay is this righteousness, this grace that grounds us in the truth that I get to discover the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, and I get to become like him in his death. All right, so let's think about the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. He's persecuting the church. He's there when Stephen is stoned to death. Not only is he harassing and beating Christians up, he's actually putting them to death is on his way to Damascus, probably feeling really good about himself. And Jesus shows up and says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And basically, literally knocks him off his horse, and he falls to the ground. He's blinded. He's taken to a place where he's trying to figure out what in the world happened to me. Now, God says to you, he says, I want you to go talk to Paul and tell him I've chosen him to be an instrument for me to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, Paul might have just struggled there for a minute because for them the gospel was only for the Jewish nation. But notice what God tells Ananias to tell Paul. And tell him, I am going to show him how much he is going to suffer for me. All right, so what if Jesus appeared to you and said, hey, I've, I've chosen to do this for me, and I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for me. How many of you would say, I'm in, sign me up. <laughs> you know, hey, Lord, 
here I am, Sin Roger. You know, you know, I I don't I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be around suffering. I built my whole life not suffering, and now you're telling me that the reason that you want a relationship with me is to suffer. Now, again, these are hard things, and again, we're sort of getting in on the base level, so just hang in there, come back, listen. But how do you do with suffering? Now, most of the people in the world carry around a chip on their shoulder, don't they? You know, a good friend of mine moved up to high country up in Boone, and uh, he's a wonderful person and all that. And he says, Clyde, there's so many angry people who moved to the mountains because they don't want to know anybody. (laughs) They want people to leave them alone. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. But I wonder how many of you this morning still have a chip on your shoulder towards God, towards people, towards the church, towards Jesus, and you're basically saying, don't mess with this. Because if you mess with this, I'm going to mess with you. Now, you might be really nice, say, Pastor, thank you, but I really don't want to talk to you. You know, you can politely push people away, you can hide, you can run, but you can't run from Jesus because he's going to take that chip off your shoulder and put his cross on your shoulder. Now, let's go just put ourselves in the context. You take somebody who has a chip in their shoulder and put them into suffering. They do not do well. It's a struggle to be there. But somebody who carries the cross of Jesus on their shoulder, they are amazing people. They love so well. I'm around some pretty amazing people, and I get a chance to be privileged to know people who know what it means to carry the cross of Jesus daily. Uh, Yesterday I was in uh, Winston-Salem at Wiseman Brewery, catching up with an old friend of mine, and I had the privilege of being with him and his first wife when she died of cancer. Now, they had been missionaries in Uganda, in the western part of Uganda. His wife's name is Betty. And in that part of Uganda, to this day, if I took Valerie with me and I went into Uganda, the Ugandan woman would meet Valerie and go, Are you Betty? Are you Betty? So Dan and I, her husband and I, were just talking. I said, You know, Dan, knowing your sweet wife and the way she loves so well and the way she could love people who were suffering was just unbelievable. Now, the churches have been planted, things have grown, things have happened, because Betty Heron carried the cross on her shoulder. And she carried the cross in her heart in a way that you could not be with her if you were suffering and not feel like, she cares for me, she's present, she's showing me the love of Jesus. But can you imagine leaving a legacy like that? Uh, So I'm sitting with Betty, I remember she was laying on a couch, she's covered up in a blanket, and she's dying. I said, Betty, how can I, how can I pray for you? Because she's leaving behind children, six children, five, five children, grandchildren, early 50s. And she said, pray Psalm 119.50. Now, you can look it uh, up later. It's a great verse. My comfort in my com- affliction is this. Your promise gives me hope. Your promise gives me life. And that's what she wanted me to pray for her, the hope of heaven, the hope of the gospel, the hope of that. You see, suffering draws us into the reality of Jesus suffering for us. And there is a fellowship with Jesus 
that you and I will only discover when we enter into the way he suffers for people. Now, this is the real power. This is the thing that makes you want to be involved in church. This is why you want North Cross to grow and reach other people, is that Jesus has a way of meeting people in their suffering that sets them free and heals them and moves them to be in a position of forgiveness and kindness and transformation that I've had this said, and it's part of my story. People will say something like this to me. I would never wish on anyone the suffering that I've been through, but I would not want to have missed how I got to know Jesus in the midst of my suffering. Is that your story? Is that, would you say that right now? Is there still a chip on your shoulder that Jesus wants to take off and say, hey, I want to lean my cross, lean me on your shoulder, or let you lean on my shoulder, or I want to put in your heart not a chip of resistance and disappointment and frustration and anger and hopelessness and replace it with joy and freedom and intentionality and going, let me tell you, I know why I'm here. I'm called to suffer with Jesus for the world, for people. I, I want this to be a legacy in this area where when I, people meet a, a man or a woman and it's somebody from our church going, are you Hudson? Are you Hudson? You know, are you Gene? Do I, you know, I, I don't know all of you, but it's kind of like, you know, that they would say, are you this person I've heard about? who loves people who are broken and who are suffering. You see, that's what Jesus does. That's the way Jesus makes the gospel so wonderful and so beautiful for us, and it really uh, sets us, uh, really prepares us. And so I'm really excited about doing this series with you. We're righteous, so we believe the gospel. We become the gospel. We're amazing because... Jesus has poured out of his grace, which means this. He loves us unconditionally. He just loves us just the way we are. But here's the good news. He loves you, you too much to leave you the way you are. And how is he going to transform you and me when we say, Jesus, I want to know you in the midst of my suffering and my birth. I really want to know how real you are for me. I want to really know how real you are for my children or my grandchildren. And to get there, we have to learn how to pray and help each other trust. And when Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Now, everybody here wants to see power, right? You want to see the power of God in our world. But how do you get there? Through suffering. You enter into the suffering that Jesus is suffering for somebody on in your neighborhood, in your family, at your workplace. One of your children is really suffering and Jesus wants to say, I want to show you how to help them. I want you to see how I love them and I, I'm pursuing them. And when you get involved in that and you're caught in that current of his unbelievable love, living life is so meaningful. <laughs> Why am I here? To glorify God. You get to glorify God by what? By entering into the joy of seeing Jesus in the midst of suffering and how he changes the world through Christians like you and me, ordinary people who do extraordinary things through his love for us. Um, <clears throat> when uh, A few years ago, I got a chance to go 
visit uh, the borders of Syria to look into the whole refugee crisis. And Aleppo in Syria, this big, gigantic city um, in the western part of Syria, people were fleeing the city left and right. So we flew into Ankara, Turkey. That's where we went. So you're flying into Ankara and you drop down and there were just mosques and soccer fields. That's what the main thing I saw. Uh, but we went down to the border. Antioch is now in Turkey. Antakya is the way they pronounce it over there. Antioch in the Bible, where they were first called Christians. So you have Antioch right there. And <coughs> I got to meet a number of refugees uh, who were fleeing, who were believers, coming into a Muslim country, which made it very, very difficult. Um, but I remember sitting at a lunch in this sort of open market area, eating lunch with two professional businesswomen who had taken their children, had fled across the border into Turkey to get away from the bombing in Aleppo and left their husbands behind to protect their apartments. And these women knew that to get out, they just couldn't go say, here's my Assyrian passport. They had to sneak their way out, and here's how they did it. They dressed up like very poor women, and here's what they did. They covered themselves in sheep dung, so they stunk to high heaven. I mean, and they tried to cross the border in the middle of the night. So you can imagine you're a border guard. Here comes these two women with small children, their children, and they're crossing over. And immediately you go say, where are your papers, whatever, and you immediately go, oh my gosh, <laughs> they stink. They stink. <laughs> And what happens? The border guards let them through. The border guards let them through. Jesus got covered up with all our stink, everything that's wrong with us, so that when we get to the gates of heaven, Jesus, they're going to say, let him in, let him in, let her in, let him in, because Jesus became sin for us, that through his sacrificial love for us, we might be made once for all accepted, forever accepted, and let us pray. Lord, we're grateful uh, this morning for the hope of the gospel, the power of it, the wonder of it, the joy of it. And we pray now as we come to the table, Jesus, that you meet us in the midst of our suffering and remind us that you've not only given us grace, you've given us the gift of righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope of the resurrection. So, Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.